City Road podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people. Hello everyone, Dallas Rogers here and welcome back to City Road Podcast. And today I'm speaking with Kate Fulliger about her brand new book called Benelong and Philip, A History Unraveled. And of course, Benelong and Arthur Philip are two key figures in the first encounters between the British Empire and Indigenous peoples in what we now know as Australia and indeed Sydney. But Kate thinks we've still got a few things to learn about these two characters. And I start by asking Kate about what it's like to take on a book with a subject matter that's as well known as Benelong and Arthur Phillips' stories. Great question, yes. Well, I first thought about doing this idea when I was living in Sydney. And as you say, Benelong and Philip, at least the, the words, the names are kind of dredged all over the city. So you you, you do come across it all, all the time. Um, and I suspect that most Australians would also be pretty familiar with uh, the figures of Benelong and Philip as well. So you're right that they're very familiar names. But the more I um, thought about um, our historical understanding of the men, I don't think that actually it has a very deep history. I don't think that, that, that the history of either man is particularly well known. And that's partly because both men represent something so much more powerful than their own lives in Australia. Philip, of course, represents, um, he, is the, he is the inaugural governor in New South Wales. So in many ways, he is our founding father. And he carries that load of being fa- fa- um, founding father to such an extent that I think you know, the details of his own life and where he came from and how he would have interpreted the world and the future nation of Australia is completely lost. Benelong is was the first Indigenous kind of uh, the key first Indigenous negotiator with Philip, but his name kind of gracing Sydney Opera House, uh, an important federal electorate, it, it does kind of overtake any sense of really the details of his life as well. I think that the predominant view of Benelong is that he kind of intermingled with Philip for only a short time. He did go to Britain with Philip. I think a lot of people think that he was just sort of like a toy of the elite in London, probably met the king but was just used appallingly there um, and then came home a tragic figure. Um, and his kind of loss and degeneration after his colonial interactions, you know, I think is often implied to represent the fate of of Indigenous peoples after colonisation. So they're both very overladen people. So I am a historian of this particular period. So I am interested in how the period is configured um, by various different nations and peoples around the world. And I did become particularly interested in the lives of actually Philip and Benelong. And what I discovered in my research was that they their lives represent something quite different from their images today, uh, which is one thing that that intrigues any any historian to kind of correct or to to revise certain impressions. But for me, the endeavor was even bigger than that because uh, in revising those two very important figures, you also get to kind of have a conversation with why those meanings occurred in the first place. You know, what is it about Australians that they needed a founding father in the shape of someone like Arthur Philip? And why did they need to believe that he was an Enlightenment guy, a figure of the Enlightenment, who was probably better than most of the other colonists at the time? That's the common refrain. Um, he was sub- uh, The word humanitarian is often um, used in relation to him. Even the word Democrat is even used in relation to him, which as an 18th century scholar is quite surprising. Um, and I'm also interested in why 
the sort of the mournful version of Benelong, what, what that does to our understanding of Aboriginal um, kind of future possibilities in this nation if it always has to be clouded with this mournful idea of loss. So, yeah, so I was really intrigued by getting stuck into revising the lives, but then also through that revising our sense of our, you know, founding settlement history. Mm. I'd like to touch on those two things. So the actual historical detail about these two men and then really the cultural context of today and why it's important to tell this story today. And I think you do something really powerful with this book. You tell this book from a different sort of cultural position. But let's let's get there in a minute. I guess for listeners, what is the story of these two men? So, yes, yeah, so the, the story is that Philip arrives in what we now call Sydney, Sydney Cove, uh, in 1788. Within about a year or so, he's connected with Benelong. They interact with each other for about two or three years, kind of as respective leaders of their small communities each. Uh, Benelong goes with Philip back to Britain for a couple of years when Philip retires. Uh, He manages to survive that uh, journey, which a lot of Indigenous people do not survive going to Britain in the 18th century due to disease impacts. He comes back and then he lives for another few years, mostly kind of not known in the history books, and Philip is supposedly retires safely in Bath and um, dies a kind of fated admiral. The story that I wanted to add to that um, and I do, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I do tell the whole story backwards, which sort of adds a little bit to how it might get narrated. But what I wanted to add really is that when Philip comes to Sydney in 1788, he's about 50 years old. He's been serving in the British um, Imperial Navy for close on 30 years or more than 30 years at this point. He has served in around Europe, in South America, and in North America and in uh, Havana at this point, he has seen up close many, many different battles of the British Empire. It is his abiding passion in life, the service of the British Empire around the world and its ascent to global hegemony, which is occurring from about 1760s, say. So I wanted to, you know, really emphasise that aspect of Philip, that his primary aim in life was to serve an ongoing uh, already ascendant and actually soaring global empire, which he successfully did. And so in that context, the idea of being sent to be a colonial governor of a small outpost, a new outpost of this global um, empire for a few years, was in some ways just one of many, many things that he thought would, would be appropriate. And in fact, he kind of, in the context of the drama of how many uh, battles he fought in, it was probably one of, it would have been one of the most challenging, but maybe the least dramatic, if, if I can put it that way. Um, after these five years in New South Wales, he goes back and he's, I mean, he could have easily retired then as a um, on, on a governor's pension, but he's so keen to keep on serving the empire that he keeps bugging the Navy to reinsert him back into service uh, because there is a full-blown war going on against the French Revolution at this point. And my book shows that he served one way or another, kind of formally or informally, for about nine years uh, uh, in Britain's effort to fight against, of course, what we have to say were the democratic um, trajectories of the French Revolution. So he's kind of, as such a such a powerful kind of servant of the empire, he was his politics also emerges in this French revolutionary age as pretty reactionary and quite conservative, you know, and he's, he's fully willing to put his might behind the counter-revolution, 
which we have to remember in this day and age was, of course, the anti-democratic side. So I wanted Bonin to emphasise that Philip is better thought of as a, as a figure who represents a global dominating empire, which was mostly conservative through the 18th century, right, wary of uh, popular democracy. So in that context, the idea of Philip being a founding father of our nation kind of adds a little bit of a different colour, right? It doesn't mean that he's, uh, he certainly doesn't think that he's founding a, a new settler nation. The idea would have been horrifying to the, the idea that you would have found something that would then separate from the empire. But also, you know, the ideas of, you know, bringing a proto-democracy to Sydney is also a little bit, it's just, it's, it's not that he was anti that idea. It's just really not something that would have been entertained very much in 18th century British minds. So that's one of the stories that I like to tell about Philip. And and, and I guess uh, in there, it's worth remembering that this is a maritime empire and he's part of this maritime machinery, which I think is something that people sometimes forget as well about this era. We, we think of Australia as very much a a land base, an island, yes, but forgetting it's in this the context of this kind of time of maritime empires. Absolutely, that's right. And Philip would have been quite aware that his superiors had decided to found uh, New South Wales really primarily to stake out a maritime spot in the new emerging field for European empires, which was the South Pacific. And the idea of, you know, managing a bunch of excess convicts, which has been such a powerful kind of idea about why we emerged in Australia, it was really a secondary, maybe third priority issue. I know a lot of Australians have debated that that question over many decades, but I definitely do come down on the side of people like Alan Frost to think that the idea of dumping convicts was not foremost. What was foremost was getting a toehold in a, marit- in a maritime field where other European empires might compete with you. Mm. Okay, Let, let's go to Benelong. And Ben Long's story, so this is the story actually that I was most inspired to try and engage with and try and overturn or just try and disrupt the, the dominant story of him being someone who didn't actually have much of a backstory or even an after story, but just was supposed to stand in for someone that was pretty tragic. And if he wasn't tragic, some historians have thought if they wanted to sort of endow him with a bit more agency than just being a victim of colonialism, they often endow him with a kind of sense of personal opportunism that he was just trying to get it, you know, make some advantages for himself. So both those ideas I was really did not square with what I was researching about the man. So Benelong is in his early 20s when the first fleet arrives. And, of course, we don't have solid ways of getting at uh, solid kind of conventional Western ways of getting at what his life was like before that. But we do know he was a child when Captain Cook had come by, you know, uh, a dozen years beforehand. So he probably, I mean, and it's very doubtful that he saw Captain Cook in Botany Bay, but almost certainly he would have heard about that event, right, because everyone in the whole wider harbour would have heard about that event. So I kind of talk about that event, that kind of Captain Cook arrival, as just an exemplar of of a community that, of course, had news from elsewhere coming in and out of their harbour all the time. This was a dynamic society, just like every society is, and I really tried to underscore the idea that every society that we talk about in this kind of level of detail has its own complicated histories, which inform the way that people understand newness in the world. And when newness really does arrive, quite dramatically, in Benelong's world in 1788, he, as I said, is a young man, and he kind of avoids the colony mostly for the first year or so. He is a victim of the massive smallpox epidemic that sweeps through in 1789, but he does manage to survive. His first wife doesn't. His first wife dies. 
but he does manage to survive. And he's the one who later tells Philip that probably 50% of the Indigenous people of the harbour died. And Philip kind of nods and thinks, yeah, that's about right. Uh, From my evidence, I think that's probably about true. So it's been a long starter that tells us that. He was reluctantly brought into the colony in 1789 under Philip's orders to be kidnapped along with another Indigenous man called Colby. And that kidnapping has always stood quite a, kind of awkwardly in uh, in Australian history because the people who want to celebrate Philip don't really like to think that he was involved in that kind of level of coercion. And also the people who want to think that Benelong kind of then did become a kind of diplomat don't know how to square the fact that he was also there under duress. But I just try and kind of show that the fact that Philip had to capture people in order to make any bonds with the Eora people shows quite a level of desperation and, of course, ready violence, which characterises the whole colony. And we know that Colby, his, his kind of counterpart, managed to escape quite quickly, which does maybe suggest that Ben Long chose to stay. And that's where the birth of this, or maybe he was just an opportunist out from his own skin, kind of arises. But I really tried to argue that it was probably a calculated decision. Someone like Colby was even less um, expendable from his community. His community had been hit the hardest by smallpox and one of them should have decided to stay in order to try and learn about these newcomers who didn't look at this point like they were going to go away again. So I try and set up the meeting in that sense, that this is possibly a collective decision and he also decides to stay in order to work for his own community. Just like Philip is working for his own community, Ben Long, I I try and characterise as a communal-minded man. Um, And all the evidence after that seems to suggest that he was. He then did kind of come to a reasonably diplomatic, uh, kind of a stable diplomatic relationship with Philip. I think the idea that they were friends is probably too much of a strong word and that that word just gets bandied about a lot. But they do have a reasonably stable relationship for a couple of years on Benelong's behalf, trying desperately to minimise the kind of impact and violence that he sees as potential in the colony. And that, and you can see that in the way that he tries to curb the land grabs of the colony, tries to square away some of the ideas about food resources, that, that so the colonists can't necessarily take all the Indigenous food resources. He does wrangle with Philip oftentimes when there's a potential confrontation between two peoples, and he tries to uh, pacify what might be a violent outburst. He knows that the British follow some sort of form of retribution. It's not always obvious <laughs> how to him, when and why people get punished, but they do know that punishment can be pretty awful. And Aboriginal people are shocked, actually, by the level of violence uh, that the colonisers do to the convicts themselves, basically. That's right. There is a lot of shock, particularly at flogging. But I think the thing that's actually most, I mean, of course, an Indigenous society also has at least ritualised violence, which it's not a, not a necessarily a peaceful society either. But I think the thing that most shocks Benelong and his uh, fellow Eora at the time was how random the violence was. It doesn't seem to make sense that you would flog a convict for speaking out against a superior, but um, everyone was really shocked when, you know, Benelong spoke poorly to one of his, say, uh, compatriots and, and then they would say, no, you, you can't speak like that way. You can't, you can't speak like that. So he understands that there's violence and retribution. Uh, and just like the British can't really understand the rules of violence in Eora society, Benelong kind of shows that British rules for, for punishment are also pretty obscure and strange as well and, you know, very much bound by conventions like all societies um, bound their rules that way. 
So Benelong just put a few few years of effort into trying to be what you know I try and call it a negotiator, a mediator for his people. I think he, uh, I think maybe by the time he goes to Britain with Philip, he is still quite hopeful. His experience in Britain is not necessarily the greatest, though. I think he starts to see that this is not a state that may be very interested in negotiating uh, with his people back home. By the end of two years. You know, he's actually also extremely sick of the cold. He's not very well and he just wants to go home. And I try and kind of prefigure the fact that he's pretty desperate to just move back uh, by 1795 because it makes sense of the fact that by but he does come back in 95, by about 96 or so, he is just walking away from the colony. And that kind of absence, um, when the colonists observed that, they just couldn't fathom how you could have engaged with a governor for so long, gone to London, and then come back and just want to walk away. So the only way that they colonists ever had to explain that was that well, he must have just been an irredeemable savage who can't think for himself because it just means it must be instinct and he's unimprovable. Whereas, in fact, I want to show that Benelong did not have a great time in Britain, which was bloody cold, and also a very, mis- very poor at understanding his conventions and his life and kind of lost interest in him as well. Um, and then he comes back to a colony that is much more violent than it was under Philip. And he didn't have his own kind of straight line to the governorship. And he sees that it's all actually becoming much more aggressive in every which way. Uh, so he just wants to walk away. He, he no longer thinks that mediation and negotiation is the way to preserve Eora society. Maybe just being kind of protectionist um, amongst one's own clans might be the better way. And so I really try and depict him as making a conscious political decision to move back to what the area that we now call kind of the right area. He probably was born in what we now think is the Balmain area, but that had been almost completely taken over then by colonists. So there's a corner of the right area that he goes to with a bunch of other dispossessed or displaced peoples. Um, They kind of form a new kind of motley clan. Um, And that's where Belong stays for at least the last 15 years of his life. There's evidence that was newly kind of uncovered in the last decade or so to show that he probably was a very happy, respected and a conventional elder at that time, not, you know, living mournfully in a drunken stupor, you know, um, waiting for Philip to come back or whatever it is or, or any kind of tragic form, that the idea that he was just away from the colony has so often been thought of as an absence uh, and therefore an absence from history and an absence from progress but actually, of course, from Benelong's perspective, it was a presence. It was just a presence elsewhere away from the colony. And that's the kind of thing I really wanted to underscore. When he does die, there is a huge bad, a tribute battle uh, waged for him amongst many, many different clans around um, the harbour, showing the kind of respect that he was held in by people of his own clans, but also other clans. His surviving son has some repute. He he must have lived to hear that the stories of people mourning and missing Bedalong uh, were there. He, 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 he knew that his father was beloved. Uh, so I really wanted to try and upturn particularly that idea that Bedalong was, you know, a, a, a kind of a sad figure in his own history. He might be a sad figure for, for colonists because he didn't end up liking them. Uh, but amongst his own people, he doesn't necessarily have to hold that that stance. And once you grasp that, maybe it makes us think again about Aboriginal possibilities in the face of imperial invasion. Mm. 
I do want to get to how you've written this book, but while we're just here sort of touching down on the kind of like key historical milestones of this two men's life and how they intersect. And one of them is obviously the kidnapping. The other one is the spearing of Philip and it's been much debated and there's all sorts of interpretations, sort of the Grace Carskins version of payback and the Stephen Gapp's version of potentially a military miscalculation and everything sort of in between. Did you want to go and reinterpret these events or are you more interested in letting those sort of, I mean, you do intervene in this debate. You say you sort of come down on the Carskin side and you actually say that actually Ben Long might've had a role to play in this, in this book. Did you want to intervene in these kind of big kind of key milestones or is your project here something else to, to paint the lives of these men before and after these key events or in and around these key events in a different way? Um, no, that's interesting. I hadn't kind of thought about it that way. But, of course, you're right that I put in both the the kidnapping and the spearing, although because my book runs backwards, it goes the spearing and then the kidnapping, is in Chapter 5 of a seven-chapter book. So I, I kind of deliberately try and, you know, in that, way, in that sense kind of diminish it. You, you might expect that to be you know, the, the first big climax of the book. But actually, I really try and say this is this is coming after. I've told you quite a lot about these men already. So in that sense, I, I, I was interested in kind of downplaying those two more famous aspects. But of course, I couldn't avoid them completely. So just to, just to backtrack, I did mention that he'd been kidnapped in 1789 uh, and then had stayed with Philip for about six months. Then Benelong himself had left the colony. Um, he, he was no longer uh, kind of constrained physically, so he did just walk away and Philip is really sad and thinks, oh, bummer, that, that didn't work out. I thought it was going so well. Now I'll have to kidnap another person. And, but then Philip gets distracted because that's the winter that the second fleet comes and it's all gone quite badly. Suddenly Philip hears that Ben Long is in Manly Cove in the sort of the September time of 1790 uh, and that Ben Long wants to see him. And it is kind of, I do like kind of pausing over the fact that it's been along just telling a bunch of red coats, yep, I'll go and see your governor right now. And Philip immediately jumps into a canoe and goes to him. So, I mean, the idea of kind of the, the power dynamics in that situation, I think are intriguing to me, that Philip is so desperate to have at least one connection and at least he thought that he got on enough well with Ben along that it was worth doing anything, which in his position would have been quite humiliating to go and see him. When he's there, Benelong, I won't go through all the particular details of it because a lot of historians have gone over it, but Benelong is the one that greets him on the beach. He's, but the, the pair then are surrounded by a bunch of different Eora from different clans already on the beach, which, which Philip already should, by then should have known was a bit unusual that people from different territories were on this one territory and they were sort of standing in a reasonably kind of formal fashion looking at them. I mean, he, all the signs of it being pretty unusual were there. Ben Long introduces him then to a man that, that Philip had not met, who we now know as Willemaring from a much further northern clan. As Philip stretches out his hand, which Ben Long knew he would do because that's what British people do, they hand, put out your right hand in order to greet someone. At that point, Ben Long kind of mysteriously melts into the background. Willemaring picks up a spear and shoves it through Philip's shoulder. So 
I, you're right that the historians have kind of interpreted that uh, well. It, it's 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 grist for a lot of interpretive mill, as you know, because uh, there's no definitive answer to it. But for a very long time, before say Caskins came along to give her version, for a very long time, I think the standard view of narrating that was, oh, this is an example of Aboriginal kind of random violence because this is the kind of you know gut instinct thing that they do. They pick up spears and shove it through people, and then the fact that Philip was so nice about it afterwards and didn't kill anyone for it uh, shows again that he was um, so magnanimous. So, you know, that's obviously a uh, a very tired trope, more of a 19th and 20th century trope. Uh, but, you know, I think it lingers a little bit. Uh, I think that the vibe of it lingers a bit. I think, I think what lingers is that Philip was pretty much a nice guy because he didn't exact uh, punishment and that also, well, it was also a bit complicated and illogical, so maybe it just shows that history is weird. So I think that those things have lingered. What has become come through more strongly, and actually it's before Caskins, it's a, a scholar called Keith Smith who really outlined exactly the steps of how Bell Long actually might have been the mastermind behind that, and he wrote that in 2005 or so, really kind of showing that it's only Bell Long who could have mustered the kind of support that was needed on the colony. Only Bell Long would have known uh, exactly the type of mannerisms that Philip would have done in order to give the signal that maybe this was the time to do the spearing that only Ben Long could have, you know, been able to pick the time and the place of Philip turning up at, on, on this day. And, of course, Ben Long had a lot to seek a vengeance for. And in Ben Long's mind, the spearing countermanded the kidnapping and so he could, at that point, wipe the slate clean and from then on their political relationship could start afresh. So there's lots of, and I do kind of favour that in my book, that there, I think there are a lot of reasons to think that Ben Long is behind it all. And for me, it was just yet another example of his kind of canny agency, political kind of cunning. I, I do respect Stephen Gapps's view of that, though, that it's much more that, that, that it was an attempt to actually kill Philip. <laughs> I, th- I think so, I, even Stephen hedges there. He kind of says, look, if you look at it this way, in cultural terms, it could be cultural payback. If you look at it in military terms, it could be military calculation. I, and he probably, I don't know if he settles on either. So I kind of like, I like this nuance in this debate. I think we we don't need to solve it perhaps. And so I was, I really enjoyed reading another take on it in your book. Yeah, great. Yes. No, I, I agree that it's just, it's one of those things that becomes more, I mean, it, for the story of Benelong and Philip, what's important about it is that it happens so that they can they can move on to the next stage. But for an example of kind of settler Indigenous histories, it is kind of endlessly interesting that it, it should provoke people to think more seriously about what's going on in these interactions rather than, uh, you know, dismiss it with a... With, 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 easy, with easy answers that always, of course, have implications embedded in it. So if you kind of want Philip to be the magnanimous humanitarian, of course, the thing that you most focus on is the fact that he didn't exact retribution. If you do think that Aboriginal people were kind of blindsided by the colony and had no agency in being able to control it, then you, you might fa- favour the idea that this was just this horrible random you know, act of violence that nobody liked. So it, however you approach it, it will expose some of the assumptions that we bring to Australian history. Mm. I really want to get into how you've written this book and why writing a book at this time like this is important and indeed why you write this story backwards. That seems like a counter-historical thing to do. And I, when I was thinking about this question, I went back to look at what was the first thing that I read where did I get my information from Philip 
from, and it was actually this book, Arthur Phillips, Sailor, Mercenary, Governor, Spy by Michael Pembroke, which is actually a little bit celebratory when I was just flicking back through it. And so I think right here is, for me, the exact reason why we need a book like yours. That that certainly is a historical book and it, it tracks the life of Philip over a long trajectory, but it doesn't get into who the man was like your book does. And you do that with both Philip and Ben Along. We get a sense of who these people were in their own communities. And of course, the shadow figure here really is uh, Barangaroo as well, who kind of lurks in the, in the shadows of this book. So can you tell me about that? Like, why write this book? Why write it now? And why write it in this way that you've written it? Yes. So the, the, the book by Michael Pembroke, um, I, th- I think it's an excellent book in that it's one of the very few, and really one of two books I think that I know of, that at least situ- situates Philip within the wider world rather than just as the governor of New South Wales, which, of course, we have to remember was only five years of his 75-year life. And Pembroke does a good job of particularly emphasising his prior activities, which included also being a spy for the British government um, in France. Um, so I really like that. But overall, it is very celebratory. I actually did cal- I did actually go weirdly, one of those weird things you do in lockdown, pick up all the times that Pembroke did call him like a kind of humanitarian or a Democrat, and it's a lot, um, as, it, as are most biographies of Philip. And that, that they actually shaped my views because if I was to characterise Philip, Benelong, and Barangaroo, you kind of get diplomat for both Philip and Benelong, and then you get kind of re- rebellious figure in kind of Barangaroo. And your book actually kind of broke those down for me, made me see the the three figures as much more complex figures and those kind of binary categorizations being quite problematic. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, I do want to say that uh, Philip did completely understand the path of peace in order to get what he wanted, which was, you know, a relationship with the Eora um, and just to minimise the the fuss and bother of having, you know, violence and war in, in a harbour that you're trying to colonise. But, you know, he is more than willing to uh, order the massacre of some Indigenous people that, that he identifies as being majorly problematic, particularly Pemulwuy. I mean, he orders the hunt down of Pemulwuy when he thinks that Pemulwuy has hurt his convict gamekeeper and orders that, you know, 10 heads get brought back to him. This is not the stance of what we generally think of as a modern humanitarian, right? But I also don't want to depict him as a monster either. It's just that I really wanted to say that in the 18th century, our 19th century ideas of humanitarianism just don't hold, right? And particularly the ideas of democracy pre the French Revolution. Not many British naval governors uh, got the slightest idea of what that might really look like in a modern sense and certainly not popular versions of democracy. But anyway, I, I, I digress. Why did I want to write <laughs> Philip backwards and, and, and Ben along backwards? The first reason was really to go against the convention, to go against our intuition, which is to tell stories forwards, married a little bit with the kind of revision, the upturning that I wanted to do with the images of both men, right? I really wanted to show that Philip was not this founding father of a settler nation. He was the servant, a willing and loving servant of a global galloping empire, right? And a maritime galloping empire, as you've said. And to really underscore the global aspirational aspects of that man and to show that New South Wales is just one little tiny bit of a huge international uh, operation, uh, so that was so, so that was really key, the, the upturning there, and to and to also kind of totally revise the idea that Ben Long is either an opportunist or a victim. 
to underscore his agency and to and to go backwards just just from the get-go helped me kind of do that disruptive work uh it does some other things in a more pr- practical way so it means that the first chapter of course is philip's french revolutionary years when he's nine years almost double the amount of years that he was in new south wales nine years really throwing all of his now aging weight behind the idea of you know fighting uh the threat of popular democracy and there, there are some even sentiments that you can find that he's talking to Lord Sydney about how, yeah, he just absolutely, he thinks revolutionists are like spiders who just consume themselves. You're doing something interesting there with geography as well, because you're not only t- temporally taking us out of step, but you're messing with the geography of Australia's imagination of itself. We think Philip starts and finishes in some ways here in Sydney. And what you're doing there is you're saying, actually, Let's start at a different place and a place that might even be as or more important to Philip and the and the colonial power than than we think. I like that as well. Yeah. So so that first that first chapter has Philip, you know, in ships and Portuguese waters fighting fighting uh, Napoleonic uh, warships, or he's on home waters fighting off French advances, or he's in the city of Bath, which is such a naval city and and a city of such kind of consumerist decadence at that time which was, of course, the fruit, the direct fruit of a successful empire. So I really wanted to embed him in that kind of world. And once you really understand the kind of politics um, behind that, those last few years of Philip's life, it's very hard then to think, to, to then when you finally arrive at Philip in New South Wales, to think of him as some sort of proto-liberal Democrat humanitarian, right? Because you, you've already got an under, a much richer understanding of what's really the most powerful themes in his life, which is seen through his interaction with the French Revolution. The same chapter, of course, also then shows um, Benelong's later lives, which I just try and emphasise again and again, was steeped in his admiration from his fellow Eora people, that he was a leader, that he engaged mostly with ritual battles between clans. He really didn't, he tried to completely avoid any interaction with the colony at this point. And it's a deliberate decision rather than just because he's left, you know, abandoned. There's very little evidence that I could find that he was particularly uh, a drunk, which is a very, very common theme in the story of Ben Long. There's really one or two mentions of it, to be honest, in his own lifetime. There's billions of references to his drunkenness, supposed drunkenness in the 19th century when he's dead. So I just wanted to emphasise again and again what Ben Long would have called his ordinary life, but really was kind of extraordinary when we think that he's supposed to have, you know, only had a historical existence in relation to a colony, that really that, that, that last 15, 17 years of his life, I was spent well away from it. So again, once, once that's really established at the beginning of a book, again, by the time we get to the spearing and the kidnapping and whatnot with Philip, we've already got a sense that this guy ended up fine. So let's have a look at this small chapter in which he decided to engage with newcomers, right? Which, he'd already, you know, we already know, from at the end of chapter one, that whatever engagement he had with the colonists was only going to be a blip in his life, and he kind of thought it was a bad idea in the end. So I think that just just, just setting it up the events that way, try and halfway make my argument for me, and that's why I was interested in it. There was a, a secondary impulse, which I suppose was a bit more part of just my interest in, I mean, I've always tried to have a little bit of a literary challenge in every kind of book that I've written, and this was one of my own literary challenges, and I think it spoke quite well to some current debates that are going on at the moment about some of the imperial implications of history writing itself. Actually, one of my 
old friends from graduate school, Priya Satya, wrote a very timely book just a couple of years before I started this book called Time's Monster. And she very eloquently talks about how it's actually historians themselves, or the historian's modern imagination, which we might say exists in the last 200, 300 years, which some historians might call Whiggish. But she just calls the historicist imagination, which does always imply that events always move forward, of course, in a progressive manner, generally to more and more liberty. That's what we, uh, you know, in other eras have called Whig history. And it struck me that actually the forward momentum of historicist or modern historicist writing is maybe key to it as well. So when we think that there are problems implicit in the Whig history, and, and Priya Satya identifies that the biggest problem is that when, for instance, historians narrate the history of India, they might say, oh, it's a shame there was a bit of violence here and there and whatever. But in the end, we got railways and democracy. So in the end, the ends justified the means, right? It's always self-justifying in the end that modernity may have had some problems to it, getting there, but the, the end was always worth it. And, and she kind of shows that history writing itself can actually kind of bolster that, that enterprise. And so I wanted to say, well, if that's true, then maybe disrupting the way that we even write the history of Ben Long and Philip would also help us see again that maybe everything that happened in Australia's past was not always going towards some glorious, uh, liberal, perfect end, that maybe the end is still needs to reckon with its means, still needs very much to reckon with its past, uh, that, it, that it actually has a lot of solving and healing to do, and that... Uh, yeah, that, that, that the means are, of course, what history is. It's not always where it arrives as, as at the end. Mm. I'd like to wrap up by returning really to the theme of this podcast, which is about cities and city making. And for me, this is a foundational story in urban studies. It's key and a lot of urbanists read this story. And indeed, as you've already mentioned, Warane Cove or Circular Quay is kind of bookended now with Benelong Point and Barangaroo Reserve, these two key, famous, important Aboriginal figures at this early part of colonisation. And I wonder what you hope for people outside history to take away from this book, particularly, well, you know, for the public narrative, there will be a whole bunch of readers that read this book with interest because they're interested in these two characters. But I think in other disciplines as well, like urban studies, we will reread this and we'll think about the past and hopefully think about the future in different ways. What do you want people to take away from this book? Yeah, well, um, no, th thank you. That's a lovely question. And it reminds me that I haven't talked enough about Barangaroo. Um, but you're quite right that um, that that the Benelong Point is, of course, opposite what's now called Barangaroo Reserve. Uh, Barangaroo was Benelong's second wife. Uh, the the evidence, the public evidence, shows that he had four. He may have had more because Yorra men could have two wives at a time in their lives. But Barangaroo was probably his well, certainly his most fiery marriage and maybe his most um, important marriage that he ever had. So. Yes, if this book could not only remind people that, you know, the, the famous iconic Sydney Opera House stands on what's called Benelong Point. Of course, Benelong himself didn't claim it. That was sort of Gadigal land, which he knew did not belong to him. But by the time that Philip built him a small brick hut on it, the Gadigal, the Gadigal had, had to abandon it or had to be pushed off. So he kind of knew that this was, he didn't think of it as British land necessarily, but he he also realised that it had been dispossessed Gadigal land. 
it was slightly to him, I suppose, kind of unclaimed land, at least the, the tiny little hut that he, that was his. Um, notably, he didn't live in it properly. He kind of used it more like a picnic folly, you know, someone that he could visit in the day. He didn't always stay in it. But I do like to, I do think that Ben Log's presence is very much resonant with that whole area. And if it makes people think again about um, this founding key Indigenous interlocutor, think that he was more than just the colonial history that uh, that he's so associated with, that, it, that through him we could understand 20,000 years of Eora history, 60,000 years of Aboriginal history, that it just prompts us to think about different things rather than just five years of him um, having a relationship with one guy in the 18th century. Barangaroo, she fe- features in my in my book, you know, as much as I could. Unfortunately, of course, she comes into the the, the story in about 1790 only as Ben Long's second wife and then dies shortly afterwards. But she is a great example of someone who never really bought into the project of maybe engaging or negotiating with the colonists, which, of course, is, is where Ben Long ended up. So it's interesting that even though she died in her in her aftermath, Ben Long kind of came around to her position as well. And her position was clearly, you know, you, you might want to observe what's going on. You might want to keep tabs on what's going on. But negotiation, engagement, trying to play their game is a hiding to nothing. And she always kind of took a, a step away and was never really convinced that it was worth it. So I think that, yeah, her her name is a great reminder of, again, that Aboriginal life goes on in uh, in multiple ways with multiple histories around, you know, the so-called drama of colony, that that there can be things beyond empire, even though even when we look at what what is called the colonial era, that if we can think beyond just colony being the main drama in everyone's life, uh, it can open up great new worlds to us. And of course, Barangaroo, even though she dies in 1791, her stance towards the colonists is what Belong ended up with as well. And just again, a reminder that early Australian history can be bigger than just an encounter story with one inevitable winner, right? It can be a very diverse, fractured story with multiple um, narratives going on where the outcome is not preordained and the outcome is still in the present day up for us to uh, make a mark on and try and, you know, address the, uh, the very problematic means that have led to this end. I really love the idea of finishing on Barangaroo, so I think we'll leave it there. Kate, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Dallas. It's great.